chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. This is the word of our God. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables that... Seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, then the seed, then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, but believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Now we ask that we would be those who have ears to hear. We pray that we would have eyes to see. We pray that our hearts would be prepared and diligent to receive your word. And that we would keep and bear it out in our lives with patience. All this we ask for from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a a transition point a little bit in Christ's ministry. It's not a a division point in Luke's gospel per se. You know, you can look at a book and there are the different sections to it. And we're actually going to not quite make it to the next section before Christmas. Uh, We're so close. Uh, But we won't make it there before Christmas to the major division. Uh, But then there are also, even though it's not a division point in terms of the outline of Luke's gospel, it is a a turning point in Christ's ministry. And it's such an important turning point that three gospels all include this parable, this conversation, and this 
exposition of the parable. And that's significant because most of the parables only appear in one or two of the synoptic gospels. John doesn't give us parables. He wrote way later, I guess he decided that they'd covered them all really well. That wasn't what the Holy Spirit was emphasizing through John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have a significant thought about parables and a moment where the parables become the predominant thing in Christ's communication to crowds. Up until this point, Christ has been preaching. He's been preaching uh, sermons more like what you're usually used to. Uh, Sermons like the Sermon on the Mount, where you unpack the Old Testament. Uh, With us, it's the whole Bible, right? Uh, But Christ, it was the Old Testament uh, in different ways about the Christian life. That was his standard up to this point. Mark 4 tells us, which is the parallel to this, that after this, for a period of time, He wouldn't preach a normal sermon to the crowds, but only to his disciples once the crowds had left. So it's an important moment in Christ's ministry. Something is changing here about his communication to the large crowds versus the disciples, which raises an interesting question. What is a parable? If this is the predominant way Christ is now going to communicate to the people at large, what is a parable? And you can read tedious amounts of innumerable wonderful books trying to define what a parable is. And I think sometimes we get ourselves in trouble trying to define it too much. But let me just say what I think most of us think the parables are. The predominant view in evangelicalism today, I believe, about the parables is that the parables are Jesus speaking like a common man to common men. Not using church language and theological terms. Not preaching stiff sermons. But Jesus talking like the ordinary guy. This has been the predominant view of the majority of evangelicals for the past, I would say, probably a hundred years now. And, and you can look at the history if you're interested in why, why that has happened, why that came about. A little over a hundred years ago, uh, the seminaries were predominantly liberal. There were the little, small, good ones that were starting that now uh, are institutions like Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia Uh, and and places like that. But for the most part, a lot of the seminaries had become very liberal. So the thought was, the more educated your pastor is, the more liberal he is. So what's the solution? Is it to start good seminaries? Well, Well, for some people it was, praise God for that. We have some wonderful seminaries today because of it. But for a lot of evangelicals in America, the solution was, Don't educate your pastor. Uh, Maybe he has a uh, high school education, you know. And and if you look, you know, Charles Spurgeon was a pastor at 18, and we know how he preached, so that's what we want. Most of of us aren't Charles Spurgeon. 
And so the church ended up with all these pastors who have no education, but they could talk like the common man. And so when you get into that mentality, you want to defend that biblically, don't you? So you say, well, Jesus talked in parables. He told stories. He didn't preach sermons. He was like the common man. And so that's how most of us think about the uh, parables today. Uh, and there, there is an element of truth in there, isn't there? Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, uses very common, natural imagery in the parables. It can speak to the common man, can't it? But is that a sufficient definition of what the parables are? Jesus avoiding theological terms and sermons to preach the common man. The, the problem with the viewpoint most evangelicals hold in America is Jesus. Because look at what Jesus says in our text. Verses 9 and 10. Problem number one with this definition of parable. The disciples, who remember were some pretty common guys. You don't get more basic than Peter, right? And they come and they say, what in the world does this story you just told us mean? Well, wait a second. If, if the parables are Jesus speaking in easy language that everyone understands, then why are the disciples saying, what in the world did you just say? Jesus, why? We understood the Sermon on the Plateau. That made sense, right? Love your enemies. We might not like it, but we got what you were saying. But what is this parable, Jesus? That doesn't seem to hold up this definition of parable, but especially verse 10. And a version of this is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus saying, with the first parable he tells, that he's going to teach them in parables. Why? Because the mystery of what the parable means is for the disciple and not for the world. That he speaks this way indeed to conceal the message he's giving from the multitudes. Even as he then unpacks it and reveals it to the disciples. That's, that's almost the opposite of how we tend to read parables. Maybe sometimes we make bad mistakes with the parable interpretations because of that. We're trying to read it the way a non-Christian would read the parable. And Christ is saying, unless you're a kingdom disciple, it will be a mystery to you. So we need to bear that in mind. I think indeed this first parable is the parable of Jesus teaching us this very thing. It's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And it's one of only two parables that Jesus gives a full explanation of. Now, now the, the Gospels tell us that he gave a full sermon on each parable to his disciples when the crowds were gone. But by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's only two in the Gospels which he gives to us the explanation in the passage. Only two. And this one in three different Gospels. And I think it's because this is the parable 
that helps us understand. Helps us understand that many people may sit in a room and hear the same gospel read. But only some will understand it. Now, when we read this parable, I want to put this caution before us. When we read this parable, and I, I say this as one who is guilty, so maybe you aren't guilty of this, but I am guilty of this. I have had the tendency to read this parable as speaking predominantly about the conversion experience. Is someone converted or is someone not converted? Not that that's not tied to this parable in any way, but I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to read it quite like that. Because notice the very end of it, if nothing else, the good soil receives the word, keeps it, bears fruit with patience. That's the Christian life. Not just a moment at one point in your Christian life. So I think we reduce the benefit we get out of this parable when we just think, is this, this is how we gauge if someone's converted or not. And then then that's the other problem, isn't it? We read this parable and we look around us. Which soil is rich over there? The, The worst part is usually we don't do that for everyone, is it? Usually... I love Rich dearly, and this was not meant against Rich. Usually we just find that one person whom we think we know which soil they are. And how often is it, be honest, that you're talking about the fourth soil? Oh, Trish is the fourth soil, yeah. Right? No, we look around us and we criticize and critique. There's a problem with that. There's a very big problem with that. The heart is deceitful and incredibly wicked. Who can know it? God says, I, the Lord alone. We can barely read our own hearts. How do we think we can read the other? I don't think this is how we should be approaching this parable. So today I'm going to actually challenge you first to be thinking about your own heart. And second... I think we'll find this much more beneficial if instead of looking at the parable and saying, am I really converted at some, have I been converted at some point in my life? Instead say, how do I receive the word every time I hear it? Look at the parable. Christ says the seed is the word of God. He doesn't overly define it and so we shouldn't overly define it either so I'll I'll say there are several ways in which this seed is sown one is simply when you read this Christ is sowing his seed the Holy Spirit is sowing seed every time you pick this up and every time you read it there is a field and there is seed being thrown but also of course Whenever a minister of the gospel stands and proclaims the word through preaching, that minister is an under-sower. I, I know, that's not a real word, 
But remember Matthew 10. Actually, in Matthew's gospel, it, it just comes almost directly before this parable. It's very close uh, in, in chronology to this parable. Christ tells his disciples, pray that the Lord of harvest will send out laborers into the field. And so Christ says, who surely is the great sower, isn't he? He's the one who speaks, hear him. But then he says, but I'm going to send others out. So every time you hear a sermon preached, seed is being cast on a field. And then by extrapolation, we can also say this. Every time you share your faith with your neighbor, seed is being thrown on a field. So let's not over-define and, and restrict. Christ says it's his word. His word read, his word proclaimed. And when that seed is thrown, it falls on different types of soil. Now, I'm going to just cut one soil out altogether right now, and, and that is the soil that doesn't even hear the word. Right? Christ says every one of these soils hears. There's an ear involved. So let's leave those who just walk away out of the equation. What's left when that seed is thrown? Four types of soils or hearers. The first we'll call the hardened pathway. The hardened pathway. I believe we find all of these among professing believers in the context of worship most Lord's days. I'm not pointing a finger at any given one of you, by the way. I'm just saying I want us to think about it like that. So the hardened pathway. The imagery is, is you know, you have the person throwing. Where do their feet go? It might have been good soil ten years ago, but the sower himself has to walk somewhere, and so things get hard, and that's the, that's the natural imagery. Don't overplay that spiritually. It's not the preacher's fault. It's not the point. But it's the, it's the soil that was once real soil, and now it's just gotten packed down. So the seed sits on top. So when birds look for easy food, they don't have to dig anywhere. They just go to the hardened pathway. There's the seed. And you know this if you've ever walked along a field. Uh, we, um, when I was in seminary my second year of seminary, and then Holly and I got married, so my last year as well, um, I lived in a, a, a little tiny house in the, it was actually surrounded by the fields, and uh, the landlord gave me a really good deal, he was an elder of a church, gave me a really good deal on rent so that I could keep an eye on his mom's house across the other side of the field, but also so that I could walk around the field, because it would just detract from people walking on his land and doing things on his land. So he also told me I could shoot a shotgun anytime I feel like it. It's a good way for him to guard his property. But, uh, but you know, walking those, those pathways, you see the pathway. There's a lot of seed that ends up on that packed down dirt, and birds love it. I'd go walking, I'd turn a corner, and the birds would go flying. That's what Christ gives as a picture here. And Christ gives us the understanding that it is the devil or his minions who come and take the word from such a heart. 
J.C. Ryle makes the comment, if you ever wonder where you can go and find Satan, he's not recommending you do something bad by this. He's just saying, if you ever wonder where Satan is, you can find him. I'll put it into our church's time. You can find him at 1030 every Sunday morning in church. Here's what Ryle writes. Nowhere does Satan labor so hard to stop the progress of the gospel. From him come wandering thoughts and roving imaginations, listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary ears and distracted attention. People marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. Now, neither Ryle or I are trying to say it's Satan's fault. You're innocent. What were you supposed to do? Satan came and took the word away. Satan came and put that distracting thought in your head or caused your head to lull forward tired. We're not saying that you're innocent. And remember where Satan finds these seed? It's on the packed down soil. Realize what Christ is saying. Your heart, your heart, I'm sorry, your heart, your heart. How does it come into worship? Or how does it approach the word when you read it? Are you calloused? Are you hardened because you don't want to change? Then Satan will find every, every opportunity he needs to take away any benefit you might have received. And that's why God, through Jeremiah and Hosea, Jeremiah 4, 3, Hosea 10, verse 12, tells his people to break up the fallow ground. That is, that ground that's gotten packed down with time. Plow it up. Plow up your heart. By Westminster, and we'll be looking at this in God's providence tonight in our service. Westminster encourages us to approach the word with diligence and preparation. We'll think about that a little bit more tonight, but how do you approach your devotional life? How do you approach the reading of the word? How do you approach worship on Sunday? Are you diligent and are you prepared? With a heart, the soil has been prepared to receive the word. Well, the, the second type of ground then, I'll call it deceptively shallow. And I bet none of you would have come up with that phrase for rocky soil because you're from New England. So you, you or some of you are from New England. <laughs> and you're used to going out into a field and you look at a field and there's a piece of granite sticking up over there, and you can see it from the other side of the field. And so you hear rocky ground or on rock, and you think this giant piece of granite popping out of the dirt, but that's not actually predominantly what the rocky problem was in Palestine in those days in, in the ancient Near East. Uh, one 
One author, uh, in, in the phenomenal parable book, uh, Stories with Intent, Snodgrass writes, I shouldn't have said the name because some of you are distracted now. But Anyway, uh, in a wonderful book called Stories with Intent, he writes, Palestine is blessed with an abundance of rocks. In places the soil may look fine, but merely provides a shallow covering for rock underneath. The temperature of the soil is warm, which leads to seeds sprouting quickly, but dying because of inadequate roots. So what Christ is saying is not something that you know, the, the sower could have looked over and said, hey, maybe I shouldn't throw it over there because there's a giant piece of granite. What Christ is saying is that the, the sower is scattering and some soil looks perfectly good on the surface but it's only two inches deep. So something starts growing, but then the water and the soil can't sustain, right? That The soil's not deep enough for roots to get down to the water that will keep it alive. And any water that comes hits that rock and slides right off. And the roots can't get deep. And so it cannot grow beneath the surface. And when the temptations come that... The heat is applied to it. This rootless system withers and dies. There are any number of times when someone will hear a sermon on repentance and perhaps tears will flow. They, they believe fully sincerely, right? Tears flow. In the moment. But because it doesn't take root in their heart, the moment temptation's heat hits, any semblance of repentance goes away, right? You hear a sermon and you're convicted about that sin which you commit every day and you have hidden away in your heart. You're convicted and you, you weep perhaps even over it. There's an emotional response. But then tomorrow when it's really hard not to fall into the same sin again and you, there's no root system there. You don't turn from that sin. Or you hear a sermon on mercy or evangelism and you get all fired up in the moment. Oh, our church needs to start this new program or I'm going to hit the streets and knock on this many doors. That's great. And then before you get to your car, because there's no root system, you've forgotten to ever think about that again. Good intentions based on excellent emotions, but emotions without roots, right? Emotions and feelings are an important part of the Christian life. We're not called the faith that is dead and stoic. Our emotions must be brought alongside our faith, but without faith, emotions just wither up. The next emotion comes, you move on. There's no depth, no truth to this religion. So we need to perhaps cry out every so often. We, even we, within whom the Holy Spirit has removed the heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh, we still need to pray, Lord. Lord, I think my, heart, my heart's getting a little hard again. I think the soil's getting a little shallow. 
renew, renew the flesh. (laughs) Renew my heart again. Revive me, O Lord. Send your spirit to do his work. The third category is thorns and thistles and priorities. The sermon is heard. He, he says that the result starts to come up. It looks like it's been taken to soil. It looks like there's a change in your life for a week, two weeks, eight years. Something starts there and seems to grow. Problem is there's other stuff growing in the same soil. And it surrounds and it chokes out. Christ tells us what these things are, the cares, riches, and pleasures. In other words, other things that claim preeminence. Other things that claim priority. We sincerely want to be a better Christian. But I also really want to advance in my career. And that might mean I need to take extra long hours and no longer really be a part of the life of the church or might need to reduce my devotional time each day so that I can have more time for that. Or, or, or maybe I really want to grow as a Christian, but I also really like my hobbies. And I only really have time for hobbies on, on Sunday afternoon. You can see how very quickly your Sunday afternoon plans, whatever those Sunday afternoon plans are, no matter how good they are, could choke out your thoughts even in the middle of a worship service. Oh, come, come on, we've all had that, haven't we? It can be as simple as, did I remember to turn the crock pot on? Right? Sermon's over at that point for you. Maybe. Maybe. Thorns and thistles, priorities... Hobbies, toys, life, choking out. Hear Ryle again. He writes, it follows that however many sermons these hear, they seem nothing bettered by them. A weekly process of truth stifling goes on within. They bring no fruit to perfection. Thousands of things which in themselves are innocent become, when followed to excess, little better than soul poisons. We, we should all think about that. Thousands of things that are fine in and of themselves, but if they become excessive in our hearts, if they claim the place of our first love, There's only room for one first love, isn't there? There's only one room for one preeminent. You can't have two. It defies the word itself. And beloved, in our hearts as everywhere else, Christ must have the preeminence. Colossians 1. So when you read your word, the word of God, his word, the Bible, when you sit in church, what is preeminent in that moment? Or will you pull up the thorns and the thistles? 
Will you do a little weeding? It might require a little weeding on Saturday night or Sunday morning to clear your minds of the things of this world. Make sure you paid those bills on Sunday so that they're not on your mind in church on... No, I said that wrong, didn't I? I think I said it wrong. I'll say it the right way just in case I said it the wrong way. Paying the bills Saturday night (laughs) so that you don't have to ask that question on Sunday morning when the sermon is going on, right? We'll think more about the, the personal reading side of things this evening. I encourage you to join us at the church office at five. Well, then there's the good soil. The good soil. Let me say two things about the good soil I think are very important for us to remember. They're important for weary preachers, like sometimes someone like me might be, and for weary evangelists, like sometimes you all might be. And it's an important thing for not only weary preachers and weary evangelists, but also proud preachers, whom I hear sometimes preachers can be, and proud evangelists, which sometimes we can be, right? And it's the same message to you if you're weary in sharing the gospel or proud and arrogant in your sharing of the gospel. The same message, this good soil, this parable teaches us that our task is to scatter seed. Christ in three separate gospels tells this parable. Matthew, it's a longer version. And never once does he say that the sower has a job first to evaluate the land. Never once does he say that the sower has a responsibility to test the soil before scattering seed. In every instance, Christ says the sower goes forth sowing and the seed falls. It's not my job to test your heart and evaluate which you are. It's your job, but it's not mine. It's not my job to decide which of the neighbors that aren't Christians that live in my neighborhood are worth sharing the gospel with, and which would be a waste of my time. If you're proud and arrogant, that should humble you. Your job is to scatter seed. You can't produce the result. You can only scatter the seed. If you're weary, that should encourage you. Your job is just to scatter the seed. You don't have to produce the result. Praise God. The good soil. The good soil is not produced by you or me. The good soil is produced by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will take the heart of stone out of you and I will put my spirit within you and you will walk in my ways, says the Lord. Praise God. But that means we need to ask for the good soil. We need to plead for the good soil. And then we need to listen. Listen when God's word tells us 
to weed our hearts, to break up the fallow ground, to be prepared with diligence to attend to the word declared. Isaiah 55 also tells us this, as we've read this morning, that whatever ground the word falls on, it fell on the right ground. It fell on the ground God had a purpose for seed to fall upon. His word is not unsuccessful. His word comes to hard soil as well as good soil. And both will on the last day bring him glory. How? He will be just when he judges. His word went forth. And he'll be the justifier of all those who heard and received and rested in Christ alone for salvation. The good soil, the good soil doesn't just hear the word. They all heard the word, didn't it? It's what happens after that that is different in this parable. Christ says the fourth soil hears and then keeps keeps and bears keeps it it holds on to it 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 grabs hold of it it guards the word from being taken away by satan no i'm not going to let this be taken away before i get to my car in the parking lot i'm not going to let this word be forgotten before i fall asleep tonight I'm not going to let it just burn up in the heat of this week ahead. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to plant it. I'm going to plead with the Holy Spirit to plant his word deep within and shape and fashion it in his likeness so that I might bear good fruit and bear it with patience. What a strange thing to say that. With, with all things, with patience. It's a life of sanctification. Some weeks you may hear a sermon and say, there was nothing in that sermon for me. What do you do with the sermon then? You cast it aside? That must have been for someone else. I think this word with patience says, every sermon is for you. If it's faithfully preached, it's for you. It may not have a place to bear fruit in you for 10 years. Will you keep it? Will you retain something of it? I realize 10 years from now you won't say, oh yeah, that sermon on October 10th of 2023, we had Dan Brown preach to us on our, our first love. But if you keep it, you may recall to mind by the work of the Spirit something Dan said about first love without ever remembering Dan. I hope you remember Dan. But it was a good sermon last week. Will you retain it? And will it bear fruit with patience? 
with patience, your growth and holiness, but also bear fruit if the fruit is going out and sharing the word with others. Will you do so patiently? Take time to meditate, if nothing else this week, on that phrase with patience and what that requires in you keeping and bearing fruit with patience. Well, hopefully we've been applying this as we go, but I I do think it's important to, again, bring us back to this encouragement I gave you to look at this parable and apply it to every sermon you hear and every time you approach the word. I I love something that Joel Beakey said about this. He, He applies verse 10 with this thought. He starts off saying, Unbelievers will never get how the three first soils relate to themselves. But true disciples look at all four responses and they say, I have too much of the first three soils. But thank God, I do have something of the fourth, the good fruit, the good response. I think he hit it on the head with that. When you look at this parable, that's why sometimes you struggle with assurance, isn't it? Because you're approaching this as a, a simple question. Are, are you saved or not? And if you look at this parable and you say to yourself, I, I feel like lately I've been the thorny ground. My devotional life just feels like I'm more interested in everything else. Or you look at it and you say, I feel like I'm the, the rocky soil with all the sermons I've heard lately. Well, if you're looking at it as just a question of whether or not you've ever been saved, then, then you're immediately going to go to an assurance struggle, aren't you? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't apply this parable to whether or not you have been saved. If, if you look at your reading of the word and your hearing of the word preached, and all you can ever think about ever is the bad soils, repent. Maybe you haven't ever been saved. But I think Beaky's right. When most of us read this parable, if we're believers, we say there is far too much, far too much of Satan plucking it away. There's far too much of no root system. There's far too much of the thorns and the thistles and the cares of this life. But if we can follow that up with, Thank God, I know, I know in whom I have believed. There's some good good soil. Then the question is, with repentance, how will we approach reading the Bible tomorrow morning? How will we approach next Sunday's sermon? What soil will we bring in every week when we come to hear the word. I think it's much more beneficial to look at it in that light, which also then will speak to whether you've ever been converted. 
but also speaks to how you are walking with the Lord today. With what fervency you are approaching your devotional life and your discipleship to Christ. Because remember, the disciples needed the parables unpacked. And Christ unpacked them for them. Are you looking to Christ to unpack his word to you? And are you ready to receive it with good soil? Let's pray.